Welcome back to Killer Fun. This is Christy. I'm Jackie. And we're so glad that you're back with us. We explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. And today, today, we have the Netflix documentary, Long Shot. Not to be confused with The Long Shots, which if you go looking for this documentary, you'll find also on Netflix, they're very, very different (laughs) forms of entertainment. Yes, extremely different. (laughs) This one is two words, long shot. It was released in September of 2017 on Netflix. It was directed, produced, edited by Jacob Lamondola. He's mostly done short films, documentaries, and documentary shorts. He's got an MO. He does. He has a focus. Right there. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. And this is probably his most well-known work. There are characters here, but there are no characters here. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) There are people who have character personalities. That's true. Yes. And there actually, oddly, are some actual characters. Yeah. Yes. As in TV characters. Yeah. Yes. So we have, but everybody plays themselves. So, so probably the most well-known face is Larry David, who is the star of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which plays a big part in this documentary. And he was also the co-creator of Seinfeld. So. Right. If you're. Very familiar face. Yes. Talk about a character. Yeah, yeah. He's funny. He's a character in real life. Yes. In so well many as, ways. As well as on his show. Yeah. It's it's fun. He's yeah. he's really delightful in a way, but I have never really quite enjoyed. Like I never watched Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like there's stuff about it that I don't enjoy, but I, I like him the actor. Yes, I can really appreciate all the kinds of stuff that he does and what a creative force he is and how difficult it is because a lot of Curb Your Enthusiasm is improv. Mm -hmm. Like they kind of have a basic idea of what they want to happen, but there's, it's not really a script. Right. So it's not, I wanted to like that show. (laughs) Did you? Well, my husband's a huge fan of Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, well, yeah. Huge. And you know, we, you can really tell if you have watched Seinfeld and talked to my husband, you can kind of see that his personality and humor are very influenced by the 90s sitcom About Nothing. About Nothing. Yeah, it's fair. <laughs> All right, so shall we recap? Let's recap okay. this. This story. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yes. Wow. I mean, because I read the blurb yeah you know that they have on netflix and I'm like that'd be good mm-hmm. and i've really kind of intentionally i had wanted to see it but didn't watch it until yeah. we were ready to cover it i've watched it twice <laughs> it's yeah pretty intense it's just i mean i literally gasped out loud and said, oh my gosh, there he is. I you did know, too. What, yeah. Okay, good. I'm I did I'm too. I, I was watching it with such, I don't know. Uh-huh. You're like, you know what's going to happen and you're still, you're surprised. I'm so invested in it, in the process that they're showing. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. So let's recap it. Yeah. yeah. So first we meet Juan Ignacio Catalan and he admits that as a child, he'd been enamored with his brother's gang lifestyle. His brother was a member of the Vineland Boys in Los Angeles. And 
Juan served as their getaway driver for a variety of crimes. After Juan was arrested the first time for participating in some of the gang's criminal activity, he decided this was not at all what he wanted and that he very much desired for that to be his last trip to jail, which can I tell you, I'm just glad that he had been a part of it and was able to kind of get out of it because my understanding is that can be quite difficult. Quite difficult. Good for him. Yeah. Mostly. (laughs) (laughs) So in August of 2003, Juan is arrested at their family owned machine shop where he works like in front of his dad and his girlfriend and it's pretty tough. Juan's brother had been arrested for murder several months prior and Juan and his girlfriend Alma had attended a preliminary hearing for that particular offense. Martha Puebla was there and had testified pretty unhelpfully for the prosecution. She said she just didn't see anything Now Martha's dead. She's been shot and the detectives believe that Juan killed her because she testified at quote unquote against against, which she wasn't really against. She said, I didn't see who shot the guy in front of my house. It was a benign sort of testimony. Really? It was of course, Juan denies that he killed anyone, but detective Juan Rodriguez and detective Martin Penner, are undeterred. So Juan had a cousin who was a filing clerk for an attorney, and that's how Todd Melnick became his defense lawyer, which I thought, oh, well, that's good. It's always nice to know somebody. I mean, right? Boy, especially in this case. Oh, my gosh. And Melnick seemed like, I mean, if somebody's going to defend you, that man, that man was tenacious. Yeah, he was. Really likable. And likable, which kind of surprised me. Yeah, because he came across like a good person. And, you know, not to be rude, but we don't tend to have a connotation of like the good, likable person with this particular type of defense attorney. Right. Yeah, exactly. So Melnick took on the case, even though he had not seen the police evidence. All he had was the story that Juan told him Mm -hmm. and something about the way Juan told the story to him really made him say, I believe this young man. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to help him out. So the detectives show that a witness had identified Juan's photo from a group on a piece of paper. They call it a six pack. Right. Yeah. So it's six photographs on a piece of paper and they show it's, it's circled and dated with a signature next to it and a statement written on it that says, this is the guy who I saw shoot my neighbor. Mm -hmm. So Melnick asks Juan where he was on the night of May 12, 2003. Where was I the night of May 12, 2003? Where was I... June 12th, 2019, which is about the same amount of time right. between when we're recording and, you know, how much time had passed. Right. I don't know. I mean, I'd have to look at my calendar. I would have no idea. And that idea. might not even tell me much. And not even. And especially then in 03, most people didn't have like a digital calendar the way that we have calendars so easily and ubiquitous now. Yeah, exactly. That was the night of Martha's murder. Alma remembers that that was around Mother's Day. And that Juan had tickets to a Dodgers game. Mm-hmm. He'd 
he'd gotten tickets <laughs> and passed them off as a gift for his mother for Mother's Day, knowing that she was not going to want to go. No. She didn't care about the I Dodgers. I love how honest he was about like, that whole scam. <laughs> he was like, yeah, I did that. <laughs> it was so funny. Yeah, it really was funny. He wouldn't fool at anybody. So then they just have to prove that he was at the game. Right. Of yeah, course. He was, mm-hmm. he was at the game. He couldn't have killed her. He had taken his daughter six at the time and his cousin Miguel and his friend Ruben and all of these people are willing to say yes Juan was with us at the baseball game they do a really nice little bit of filmmaking here they describe Martha's murder on one part and then they talk about the details of the Dodgers game since these things are kind of congruous right you know they they kind of it's a nice little bit of filmmaking the way they present that material it's concise and informative but still really interesting Mm -hmm. i thought they did a great job i thought it was really good so then beth silverman is the deputy district attorney and she was convinced that juan's alibi was bogus she was not going to let this go she's nicknamed the sniper because she was a proponent of the death penalty and had never lost a murder case and incidentally still never has. So we'll get there. Because if you can't tell right now, I have a look on my face that says, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, because, we'll get there. Well, this never went to trial. Right, because it got dismissed beforehand. Right. Oh, that's sneaky. Yeah. So technically she's never lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Melnick. The attorney contacted Sam Fernandez, who was the senior vice president and general counsel for the Dodgers, and he wanted to find out just where Juan was seated. They had the ticket stubs. They wanted to see where in relation to the dugout and different things, where he was, just to see if maybe anybody could confirm that... Juan was there. Then he realized, oh, there's Dodger Vision. Right. Which there's is, a video. Hey. Yeah, this is, a, you know, all everywhere has it now. I don't know how, if it was, I mean, yes, I, I think most, yeah. play, most, most sporting events had this where they put you on the Jumbotron. Right. Which if you've ever taken a child to a sporting event with a Jumbotron, their mission in life for that period of time that you were there is to end up on the Jumbotron. Right. Like that's everything at that moment, right? At that whole time, just every break, every song break, every little game they play. Yes. Yeah. They're on their feet. They're dancing. They're big. They want to be, at least my children, <laughs> have your phone out, mommy, so you can take a picture when I'm on there. <laughs> oh, my word. Oh, it's so funny. For two kids who can trend a little to shy with around people they don't know they're both big time performers <laughs> that's hysterical uh-huh. oh it's funny yeah so they had recognized though that that okay first of all the game was televised yeah so but they hadn't really seen anything on the video or had they started looking at um, that yet i don't think first? that they even really looked at that because, because they could just pull the original tapes from dodger right vision. And, well and, yes and dodger vision is more than just the live feed right. of the show. It's got everything. It's, it's got everything in every play that and they put up. They right. put put it on the jumbotron, and then they have stats below it, and all yeah. this stuff. And you know, and then it's pans of the crowd and zooming in on people. And they and, have a record of every camera angle, even if it wasn't being used, even yes. if it wasn't currently live on yes. the screen. So the switcher, you know, had all of these options. Well, you got all these cameras, and they're rolling. Yeah. They're rolling. And they keep all that Mm -hmm. film. They keep it all. At that time, 2003, all of this was on VHS tapes. (laughs) 
So while Juan was seen in the seats on these tapes, Mm -hmm. the resolution wasn't good enough to confirm that it was him. Right. It was kind of... Yeah, it's too bad. It was very standard. Yeah. I mean, we have better footage on our Facebook Oh, (laughs) from a cell phone video than that gave us there. Yeah. Didn't that have funny? It's just amazing how quickly it comes up. So Juan recalls a lot of the details of the baseball game, and he realizes that there there was somebody there, and I think they were filming something. Melnick goes back to Dodgers Media Relations and wants to know, was there something being filmed? And they're like, well, here's the, they, there actually was. And mm-hmm. here's the number of the production company, and it's HBO. Mm-hmm. So Tim Gibbons, who works on Curb Your Enthusiasm, worked on yeah, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. <laughs> He takes the call from Melnick. It was an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, obviously, starring Larry David. And it had a portion filmed at that game, the carpool lane from season four. And in this episode, Larry wants to go to the Dodgers game, but traffic's bad. And the only, the carpool lane is moving, hence the title of the episode. (laughs) So Larry hires a sex worker so that he can legally drive in the carpool lane. So he illegally (laughs) hires somebody to make it legal for him to drive in this particular lane. And he ends up taking her to the game. And when they were planning this episode, they were trying to figure out how they were going to do it. It was important to Larry that it be in Dodger Stadium, because hometown team. Mm-hmm. You know, filling a stadium with extras. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, hard. That's that's hard. So when they talked to the Dodgers, they said they could film at a real game. So that's what they did. So they filmed in a couple of locations in the stadium, and those were arbitrary. It was wherever there were seats available where they put these people. Originally, they weren't going to let Melnick... Look at the unreleased, unreleased tapes footage. of this. Yes. Yeah. And then they decided, okay, fine. You can come in to our studio and look at this stuff. Juan had taken his daughter to, to get concessions. And when he got back, there was a camera crew blocking the aisle. And they told him to wait. And then somebody let him through. One of the production's assistants said, who, just who said I was a really crappy PA and I just let him through. Yeah. He said, I don't even know if they were filming. I don't know if I knew if they were filming. I just wasn't a very good assistant. Uh, yeah. He, I, he was just a crappy PA who let him through. And I'm like, thank God you did. Yeah, exactly. And there is a super clear view that of Juan and his daughter walking down the aisle. And then they st- keep going and there's additional footage where you can see them in their seats and you're like this is when I was like hallelujah did I not tear up like in this moment like the filmmaking of this thing because the suspense that they built over all of this and then they hit that footage and they put it in slow-mo and all of a sudden you see him come into view and it was like oh my god (laughs) which you know it's good filmmaking when you know what's going to happen and you're still almost in tears Yes, because you're so happy for these people. Yes. The time codes on the footage that he was in was 8.55 p.m. and 9.15 p.m. But the murder took place just after 10.30 p.m. So they're like, uh, not enough. Yeah. Beth Silverman says that he was on the street where she was murdered at 10.43. There's no reason why he couldn't have. That's what he, she said. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Juan said he bought a bunch of stuff when he was at the game, but he didn't use a credit card for any of it. So he didn't have that to 
point him to his location. But he did have a cell phone and he got a call from Alma. She was calling from a friend's phone. She called him at 10, 11 p.m. And Melnick knew from the O.J. Simpson case that you can use cell phone tower data to find a location. I love, I love how he made that connection. And he's like, you know, that's how they tracked him as he was on his phone. And so many things went through my mind. Like I'd forgotten that he was like all on the, I'd forgotten that aspect of it. Like that he was on his phone and that they were tracking him with the towers. And I had forgotten about that and how revolutionary that was at the time to go, you can do that. Yeah. Wait, what? And you know, and then to think now, he was on his phone and driving, and I think just how things have changed. I don't know. It was just kind of one of those moments where you're like, well, wow, that's an anachronism I, right there. Was O.J. Simpson driving, or was his friend driving? He was driving. Oh. I think he was driving. I don't remember. Gosh. I mean... I don't know. It was a long time ago. I mean, my mother had that VCR rolling. <laughs> okay. The whole trial, the whole chase, I mean, the whole thing. Wow. People were obsessed. Oh, my gosh. She was obsessed. Yeah. Yeah. Tasha Boggs is the next tele employee who helped Melnick um, get and understand the cell phone data. And the cell phone tower near Dodger Stadium that the call from Alma went through to Juan's phone only had a radius of one mile. So, I mean, it's pretty limited to where he could have been to have that particular call bounce off that particular tower and get to him. So they were able to place him at or near the stadium too late to have gotten there to be the murderer. Right. So Judge Leslie Dunn said that she found the cell phone testimony really confusing, that she really wanted a map plotted out for her, and they didn't have that. Doesn't that blow your mind? Like, why did nobody think to do this? Well, I don't know whether it's just because we live in this day and age and we get it so much more now, but it like, I don't even know why you need a map. Like, how is this? But you know, I mean, if I wanted to know, I'd pick up my phone and I'd look at the map or if right. I wanted to know, and I was a judge, I might be resourceful enough to, you know, open a map, yeah, look at Dodger stadium, understand what a mile is and draw a circle. Like, I don't even know how this was so confusing. Well, my understanding is there was a lot of technical talk. There was a lot of technical talk about this is the number of the... The tower the that ta- was used. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. This is the number of the tower. Here's other numbers and where their location is and their s- cell phone numbers. It was confusing for her. I guess it was also kind of new for it everyone. Was, whereas yeah. that is so less confusing now. I mean, all of us kind of know what our closest tower is, right? No, I mean, I don't but, know the yeah. number of it, but if you told me the number of it, I could tell you where it was. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I know I live this far from the tower. That's why oh. my reception is crappy. <laughs> Or it shouldn't be crappy because I live freaking that close to the tower. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> you know, why like, is the ta- Why is my reception not better? We sort of have a I don't know understanding mm-hmm. of how that works now. So agreed. I don't know. So she found it confusing, and she knew that she had to decide whether this was going to be sent to a jury or whether it was going to be dismissed. And she really felt the weight of that choice. And so, in effort to save court time. Judge Dunn took the interrogation tape home and listened to it over and over. And she listened to it and made her children listen to it. And she kept asking her, which I'm like, why would you make your poor children? Maybe I mean, they're, maybe they're like into that stuff as teenagers. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that. 
I would have my children listen to it, but she kept asking herself over and over, is this the voice of a guilty man? I have so many thoughts. I, yeah. (laughs) We'll have to, we'll have to debate all of that later. (laughs) I mean, so many thoughts. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The judge did believe that the prosecution's one and only witness had every intention of being honest and credible, but due to the circumstances and the evidence available, it all pointed to one not being the person who committed the murder, and she decided to dismiss the charges. Right. So it was later learned that the detectives were working with some inappropriate means, and that the photo with Juan's photo circled was fake. And I so read that that's not technically against the law, their particular case rolled the gray area of what Mm -hmm. was legal and not legal Mm -hmm. because there, there is an amount of uh, deception you can use. Right. But even if they were within the law for the amount of deception, they failed on so many other areas that they were supposed to have done as investigators that it made it. Yeah. So, Juan was eventually awarded $320,000 because of the detective's behavior and for the months that he spent in jail, needlessly, erroneously. Detective Martin Pinner was removed from working homicide and Juan Rodriguez was transferred to auto fraud. The FBI later found that four men from the Vineline Boys, so four men from the gang that Mario was a part of mm-hmm. were responsible for Martha Puebla's death, but one was not a member of that gang. Nope. And not responsible for her death. Alma considers and goes over the what if a whole bunch of times. What if he'd watched the game at home that night? She was just so grateful that he went even though I think she was maybe a little annoyed that he went at oh, the time. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I really got the impression that she was kind of annoyed that he took their six-year-old and kept her out until after 10 p.m. Yeah, like really late. Like she's calling him like, where are you? Yeah. Why aren't you home? Because they've gone into extra innings. Yes. And uh, well, I got more to say about that too. Okay. Sam Fernandez also, he the, of the Dodgers, also kind of plays that what if game and it really just kind of illustrates the amazing set of circumstances that benefited Juan. Right. Thankfully. So there was a reviewer, uh, Claire Bueno, from Netpicks. Netpicks. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was cute. She said that she thought that Juan bared an undeniable likeness to the... Oh, to the sketch? Yes. To that the, was made? Yeah, to the composite sketch that was made by the only witness. And I was like, that looks like almost every Hispanic dude in Los Angeles. I mean, especially in the early 2000s. Yeah. It was the style. It was the, it was the short hair, the thin, thin mustache. The mustache was thick, but it was real short. Right. You know, that the particular kind of mustache general, very, the, I thought the facial features were really general. Like you could look and say, Oh, that looks like that guy and have it, hold it up next to a guy who really looks very different from the first guy and think, oh, it kind of looks like him. Yeah. They said it was a striking resemblance. I was like, 
literally the sketch you drew looks like everybody on that page to begin with. And I get it. You're looking for that thing, but in no way would that sketch rule any, anybody out. No, agreed. It just really seemed very general. Oh yeah. Like, I mean, you could, you could take a picture of a white woman and put the most generic features on her and hold her up next to you or next mm-hmm. to me. And we'd both kind of look like her. Right. Especially, you know, like a pencil sketch like that. Right. There was nothing unique about the sketch itself. No. I know. I, I kind of laughed because I was like, I don't know. I kind of laughed because when they said it was a striking resemblance and they kept hanging their hat on it, I thought to myself, uh, I feel like you're racist. <laughs> yeah. That's like saying all oh, black people look alike. That's what they did. And I was kind of appalled. I'm thinking, first of all, you're in LA. Like this is a very diverse town. Please tell me, please tell me that you didn't just describe somebody and pin them for a murder based on the fact they had short hair and a mustache. Yeah. Are you kidding me Yeah, right now? Pretty much. But I did like what Claire had to say about the filmmaking. For such a small amount of time, there was much covered. So I have to praise the documentary filmmakers for their economic and acute editing. And I was like, that is right on. The story is simple, and they kept it simple with no repetition. Right. I'm like, amen. Because I could have seen somebody trying to drag this out for six episodes for a special limited series. Yes, they could have dragged on and on and they just didn't need to. But I thought I agree with her that it was. It was really well presented. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a real quick break and then we'll be back with our is it true? Can it happen? More like how does it happen? We'll be back in just a moment. (laughs) Have you ever wondered what two Aussie dads, really inappropriate ones, would tell you if you asked them questions like, what if my kids catch me having special cuddles? Ugh, awkward turtle. Or is it okay to hide in the toilet and play games on my phone? Well, it better be. Maybe you want to hear our unique reviews of movies, beers, video games, etc. How about some cheeseburger spring rolls? Ah, sure. Uh, If some or any of that tickles your fancy, then check out the Dad Zone on the Forge Audio Network. What's that? What do you do? All right. Thanks for sticking with us through that quick break. Now we're back. So is it true? Can it happen? How did it happen? Let's talk about some of this. Well, I was going to talk about the crime for which Mario was originally arrested for. And I pulled up an article and read it. And I thought, this is it. November of 2002. Mario was involved with some bad things. And evidently, there were several incidents in 2002 in November. So we're just not going to, I'm too much. Yeah. There's uh drive-by shootings and Oh geez. yeah, it was, it was not so good. Yeah. So Todd Melnick, the attorney believed one, but didn't have the prosecution's info. And so that kind of got me thinking about how and when does the defense get that? Well, that's called discovery. Right. Yeah. He he does find out eventually, right? He has to. Yeah. I mean, he gets the information. Discovery is where the defendants find out about the prosecution's case. And in a a sort of a, a less succinct way where the prosecution finds out about the defense's case. They can't spring stuff on each other at trial for the most part. Yeah. 
So it, you can't just like hold back your ace in the hole sort yeah. of situation. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So the defense gets copies of the arresting officers' statements and reports, and any statements by the witnesses, and then they get a chance to look at the evidence. The idea of discovery is that it's going to promote a fairer trial, that if both the prosecution and the defense have a chance to look at the evidence that the other one has, that they can both make sure that the evidence is being presented in a factual way. Right. You'd think, okay, these rules are to protect the defendants. Yeah, not really. (laughs) I mean, yes, because it's a fair trial, but it also promotes settlements. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you can can see see that that the prosecution Mm -hmm. has a really tight case against you. You might settle for something. Or if you see that the defense is really good, you might settle for something less. That makes sense. And that 90% of all criminal cases are settled before trial. Well, I guess that is a good thing. I mean, to a degree. Yes. But there's also the idea that if a prosecution's case isn't that strong, they're still going to get disadvantaged people to plead guilty because they can't afford the expense of a trial. Mm, Yeah. There's a lot. That's more issues than we're going to go into. (laughs) All right. All right. Right now we're going to talk about Dodger vision. Okay. Let's do that instead. Because holy moly, there are uh, 31 people who work on the Dodger Vision crew. I just didn't realize it's like a full-time job for 31 people. Right. And all the, all the teams have them. Yes. In fact, all, most of the colleges have them too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it baffled me that it was that big of a crew and that they're like on all the time. Dodger Vision screens actually have the highest pixel density of any screen in Major League Baseball. Wow. Really? And they have... still. To this day, mm-hmm. like true, yeah, wow, yeah, even still. So, they've always worked to be on the cutting edge, and they're something that's specific to them is that they have a very original shape to their in stadium boards. That there's like a hexagonal shape that mm. was the original shape of the scoreboards, and they've maintained that. Oh, well, that's kind of cool, yes, and there's they're so serious about their Dodger vision that it's all housed in a control room that is behind bulletproof glass. Wow. That's something. I mean, control room. Okay. Locked. Got it. Bulletproof. What happened? I'm like, okay. What happened? Yeah. yeah. Except the the equipment. So this is what I'm thinking. LA, if you've got Mm. production people, if you've got crew people who are getting into the business, this would be a fantastic job, a a fantastic nine to five kind of situation while you do creative work. I can't can't imagine that the equipment they have is super top of the line. And maybe in LA, in certain areas, there would be independent crews who may not operate cleanly and with crime they might find a market for yeah they need glass so they made it bulletproof because it had to be lots of 
expanses of glass make it bulletproof so that when the stadium is Closed. empty during the day, yes. somebody can't just shoot the windows and steal and it all. And steal it all. Okay. So that's, I, I'm going to guess that that's likely that's, why. I see, and I hadn't really thought of that. I'm like, that makes I was like, what happened? I somebody know, did what, not want to be on the kiss cam. I mean, seriously. <laughs> somebody said, no, I will not marry you and shot uh-huh. the police up. I yeah, don't know. Like, I don't know. Bulletproof glass, but I bet you that's right. I bet bet that's right. Cell phone data triangulation. This is so, I was so fascinated listening to this because they have that element of being this far away from the beginning of that to kind of giggle at the beginnings of it, but also to sort of realize how long it took us to put laws in place about data and privacy, you notice that they went straight to Nextel. No warrant, nothing. They just went to, and they were like, sure, I'll tell you where this person was. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You know, like, so it was kind of interesting because for one, it was like, yes, please just tell them, tell them where I was. Yeah. Which now we have the opposite problem. A defendant can't just wave and give permission and say, yes, you may just look where it was. Now you have to go through a warrant, which actually... It's harder. Can slow things down. When, when it should be the person who gets to say who has information from me. I'm the one. I get to tell you. Yeah. Not a judge. Yeah. Not evidence. I get to tell you. Right. I can waive my, my privilege for anything. I should be able to do that. So Agreed. it was very interesting to watch this. Yeah. It kind of brought up a lot for me. Well, so I purposely looked for some older articles yeah. to try and get. Now, the oldest one that I could really find was 2008. So they were talking about using like a GPS to pinpoint that mm-hmm. that can be pretty accurate in 2008 even. The less accurate was the cell phone triangulation, which is basically what they were using right. for one. They weren't really using triangulation because it was only bouncing off of one tower, but the one tower had a fairly small footprint mm-hmm. of service area. Really, that's not very accurate. Juan was really lucky that it bounced off of that particular tower and that tower wasn't too busy or too overwhelmed or so that it wouldn't bounce it to it another didn't one. Bounce it to a different one. So he was really It could have been bad. It could have been bad. And then... In, but can't they see that? They could have seen that. Okay, it got bounced from... I don't know if they could have in 2003. I mean, I, I would... Maybe? I mean, I would think they had to. Only because... Well, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that if they're doing maintenance on their towers and they're tracking their own workload, they have to know which towers are taking, taking excess. Right? right? So I feel like they probably, for maintenance purposes... But if you were to call them, would they realize they need to track that portion of it? Right. Or would it have been too compartmentalized between the general, like what towers are being used and then like, here's maintenance over here who actually has access to how things are bouncing. It's really, so this article from 2014 from TechDirt talked about how inaccurate this can be and that while it can be sort of useful in a lot of ways that it doesn't really give you a very exact location that it frequently will show you. So I don't know if you have, if you ever like track when your husband's 
coming home. Like oh, yeah, my like husband will, friends and stuff. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, or like just on the iPhone, you can in messages, right. you can look and see where they are, and you know, I'll see him coming home, and I, it'll show him. I know what highway he's on, right? You know, but it'll show him fairly far distance, half a mile or more off of the highway. I know right, and it just doesn't. Yeah, it's not down to a. It's not perfect it's not perfect no and you know and that's fine and you know i'm not like stalking my husband i'm just (laughs) i want to i want to know if he got caught in traffic without him having to text or call me and be distracted so i know when to have dinner ready right (laughs) you know yeah like okay do i need to wait to start these noodles or right or can i drop them now like how close is he yeah Mm -hmm. i mean well i feel like different apps are better than others too Mm -hmm. because you know like when you did um you ever go geocaching oh um we've talked about it before my kids never found an interest in it but i thought it was really cool it is really cool and if you're using gps on Mm -hmm. your either maps or like you're using it through an app that gets you down to like a matter of feet that's on the geocaching. Good. So, I mean, it's pretty close, yeah. but you know, you hit the find friends app and it's like, ah, yeah, somewhere about over here. Yeah. You're not getting coordinates, you know, yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I don't know. Different apps can use it differently, but in 2003. Yeah. Oh no. That's well, was- even in 2014, this article was saying how cell site location has been used to convict lots of innocent people that it's shown them in an area where they, we're sort of close to, but not really at it, like quote unquote pinpoints them in a location, but they're, they weren't really at that location. And when you're talking about several hundred yards, that could be a they, big it deal. Can, it can make a big difference in a prosecution's case. It doesn't matter that much to your cell phone provider. Oh, no, no, at, at all. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It is hard because, you know, it's a multifaceted thing. And that's why the investigation matters whether it was done well or not because say you go and you find out okay this person was in the general area all that does is give you information about how you might proceed to find evidence right it isn't evidence inherently in its own way people don't understand that even prosecutors often do not understand that this is a piece of information it is not the information right and just because the data is there doesn't mean that it's accurate doesn't mean that it's foolproof and it doesn't mean that it's complete in its story no so yeah it's hard but you know the laws surrounding that are are such that i mean when we talk about it later when we talk Mm -hmm. about this investigation and the deception we'll kind of play into that because the reasons why investigators are required to do certain things is to help mitigate this this uh false positive okay you know well let's somebody did kill martha puebla they did somebody did so let's talk about that a little bit oh yes and then that'll probably lead us to the investigation anything that you'd like to say about that (laughs) So Martin Penner and Juan Rodriguez had actually had contact with Martha Puebla prior to this incident. Mm -hmm. A friend came to her house and her friend's boyfriend sat in the car out front and her friend's boyfriend was killed in a drive-by shooting November 27th, 2002. This is the incident that Mario was later arrested for. They found him bullets in him and he died a short time later and martha said she just she didn't see anything 
it happened right in front of Martha's house. It's sad, awful. So when they arrest Mario and Jose Ledesma for this particular murder, they tell Ledesma that you're the murderer and we have the evidence to prove it. He says, no, you don't. And he says, I have witnesses that testify that, that you are the shooter. They did exactly what they did with Juan later, mm-hmm. which is lay down a six pack of mug shots and his image is circled. It says MP next to it. Like she initialed it. And the words, those is the guy that shot my friend's boyfriend. Ooh. Ooh. So Ledesma ends up in jail and there's a transcript. they Record those calls. Right. By the way, unless you're talking to your attorney, they're recording your calls in jail. Yeah. <laughs> FYI. Mm-hmm. So he calls one of his fellow gang members and says, do you know the girl that lives there by my house? Her name starts with an M. I need her to disappear. She's dropping dimes. Okay. Okay. He's talked to gang members and said he needs the girl whose name starts with an M to disappear. The detectives, Pinner and Rodriguez, they didn't listen to it. Oh. They didn't listen to this. It was transcribed by a company that is used by the LAPD, and it was done badly twice. Mm. It was later that a Spanish-speaking Los Angeles Police Department officer listened to the message and he could understand it just fine. I guess the transcription agency didn't speak Spanish very well. And so they didn't translate it well. They didn't translate it well. It wasn't that the recording was bad. It was that it was poorly translated. Then they hear this order to kill the girl. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. She'd not done that. That's right. She'd not done that. She, she said she didn't see anything. So again, these detectives oh my gosh. have falsified information to try and entrap somebody to admit to a wrongdoing. In this case, the guy had done it. Right. But in doing that, they put somebody else in danger. It's common sense that they did not use Dennis Kilgoyne, who's a California Homicide Investigators Association, agrees. He says, you're not going to be telling gang members, Mrs. Brown down the street saw you doing this because that puts their lives in jeopardy. Yeah, you just don't. And they thought they were being all suave by putting just initials. But then they said, I shot my friend's boyfriend. Uh, hello, you really have identified her. Right. I don't know what they were thinking. I, I I don't either. Okay, I have a question. Do we know, do we know what the time frame is between the time that the translation of this call was known by these investigators and um, when her death was? Yes, it was not until January of 2005 that a, a Spanish-speaking LA oh, police department so way officer after the fact way after. Oh, so sad. So she died in um, May of 2003 and it wasn't until January of 2005 that a Spanish speaker from the LA police department went back and listened to this. Ugh. They just didn't 
they just didn't do their due diligence. They were trying to cut corners, and you know, and it's probably a tough time. It's got to be a difficult call for police, especially police investigating gang murders in an area at a time when a lot of that was happening. I empathize with them, but you cannot put people in danger like that. You can't put people in danger like that. And if you would just do your due diligence, <laughs> you might actually affect the change that you're trying to cut corners to make. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, that's the problem with these shortcuts and being so sure about these things is, you know, you think you've got somebody and then you look at the entire investigation through the lens. If you've got it wrong, you have to leave a door open right. to check all the rest of what's possible. You know, they, they should have come across that call by the sheer fact that they should have looked at everyone who was affiliated with this girl and knowing that there was somebody shot outside of her house that was connected to her. Yes. And they didn't actually say, hey, and we got somebody guy in jail for the shooting outside her house. Maybe we ought to like, look. Yeah. Hello. I guess he, did, I guess he had shaped his mustache. I don't know. Like, yeah. oh I don't, I don't <laughs> I mean, know. You know, like it's just, ugh. it really was just, they thought they knew who did it and there was no convincing them that somebody else did. Yeah. They really hated Mario. I know they did. Yeah. They really didn't like Mario. No. They, they wanted the brother. Well, he was not a good man. He was not a good man. He, but I think he they made did a, a little bit of a... Poor choices. I think they did a little, you know, transference there. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. And the FBI later found that there were people, other people responsible for Martha's murder. In 2008, Raul Robledo was sentenced to life term in a closed hearing. After he shot Martha, mm-hmm. and he's serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole, and there are uh, other members who also are serving. They all of them pled guilty because they had done it, right? Well, and- we think. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's so crazy! Uh, I can't get into all that. This deception that they're using, I I think it was clear that their deception, in light of how they handled the whole investigation, was outside of what the law allows. It's such a gray area. It is a gray area. I mean, it's got to be unimaginably hard to work in that kind of job. It's vitally important, but I just, I can't abide the... You have to do it with a certain amount of discretion. Mm -hmm. Like you can't just lie. You have to set it up so that there's an implication of evidence Mm -hmm. that might motivate them to say something. Well, see, circling it and forging the signature Not feels okay. like an outright lie. That's an outright lie. But if they put it down on the table and was like, what do you think about that? Yeah. How uh, do you think a witness might look at that? Oh, they, they... These are the things that make a person start thinking, oh my God, they already have my mugshot on the array. They're close. They have an yeah. idea. If yeah. you're guilty, you might think... Yeah. Or you might say something. You might slip up and give the, uh, the investigator uh, an opportunity to then go... Okay, well, let's talk about what you just said now. But they've never said, hey, we have identified by a witness. All they've kind of done is opened the door. Yeah. And so there is an amount of legal deception. Man, it's tough. That And that's really hard. I don't yeah. know. It's just, oh, talk it's about. Just, yeah. I mean, on the one hand, if you can catch criminals mm-hmm. and, you know, let them catch themselves in the spider web, right. that's awesome. But on the other hand, you can't you can't lie and put people's lives in danger. No. Well, it's hard too because, you know, they have these 
these laws in place and it really rests on the professionality of the officers themselves to use the leeway they've been given as professionals who understand their field and right. who understand people and how they work. Right. You know, because it can be used just as easily to determine whether you think they are lying or not. If I say, if I put something in front of you and it's a vial and I'm like, and then I start talking about DNA evidence and they're like, run it. Yeah. You're like, okay. <laughs> now I understand. Now I understand where you are. Uh-huh. If you start evading, redirecting, or if you get all like my lawyer's going to get on that, okay, well then maybe I really, maybe we do need to find some DNA. Yeah. Right? So it kind of gives you both ways, an investigator, a tool to kind of say, okay, well, I put it to the test, this litmus test, and they kind of, they acted the way, the profile of a, you know, not guilty individual. Yeah. Would act. So, well, but then you got to trust the people. If I'm that are ever using arrested, it. I'm just not going to say anything until an attorney is present. And as a non-attorney who is not giving you advice on a podcast, I'd recommend you do the same. (laughs) (laughs) If you are arrested for something, have an attorney with you, somebody who has got your best interests. Even if you didn't do it, just because you didn't do it doesn't mean that they're not going to try and pin it on you or that they don't legitimately believe that you committed the crime, have an attorney because that person is looking out for you. And it's not just about the end game or the end result, the decision that's made. It's about what kind of hardship you'll endure during the process if you don't get some support and some counsel right from the beginning to navigate some of the things. Amen. All right. So psychology break. Yeah. So Juan gave his mother a gift that she did not want. (laughs) So I thought we'd talk about the types of gift givers and what some of the psychology behind that might be. I just love that scene so much because the look on his face. I mean, I swear I've seen that look on my child before. He just turned into a little boy. Yeah. (laughs) It was so cute. Funny. It was darling and very endearing. Yes, it yes. actually kind of was, even yeah. though it was such a shady thing to do. Yeah. So this article from Psychology Today by Peg Streep said that gifts are both symbols of relationship and also symbols of self. Mm, definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So we kind of have believed them to be revealing in the nature of our connections with others. Oh, yeah. yeah. I am probably neurotic about this. Yeah. Like, this is a dark, dark hole for me. Yeah. Oh, really? I have, I have issues. Like, what does it say about this person if they don't know me well enough to give me a gift that I really appreciate? Yeah. Yeah. I, I put more emotional stake in oh, it than oh. I should, but yeah. I know that. Okay. And I'm working on it. Okay. <laughs> I've gotten better. Okay, good. I have gotten better about it. Yeah. Um, well, and you feel like if they don't know me well enough, do they really love me? Well, and that and is then a kind it gets of the all slippery like... slope. <sighs> I think it's less about, hey, they got me something that is a little off about some, you know, superficial. Right. Oh, you know, you brought me cookies. You forgot that I don't really like macadamias. Mm-hmm. Huh, okay. There are... Five types of gift givers. All right, let's hear them. I'm There's, scared. No, don't be scared. There's the genuine giver, the person who actually thought about you and what would give you pleasure. One was not a genuine gift giver in this particular oh, instant. No, 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 he was not. You could argue that his mom is probably glad 
that he gave her a selfish gift. She is now. The gift, being a selfish gift giver, was the greatest gift he could give her. Man, what a conundrum. That is a conundrum. (laughs) All right. Then we have the status hound. This is uh, somebody who's giving you costly gifts, expensive gifts, to show you how much money or power they have. That's the type of gift giver I have a love-hate relationship with. Yeah. Because on the one side, I see what's going on there. And on the other side, I'm like, it still benefits me. <laughs> I got a really mm. nice, expensive purse out of that. Yeah, yeah. kind of. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. I can be a little selfish with that. <laughs> Gifts are my love language. FYI. Oh, okay. That's like my thing. Yeah. Good to know. That I was grow- I grew up that way. That's okay. how my, yeah. my parents were. Yeah. And so that's you fine. Know, There's I, nothing wrong with that. Oh, there was nothing. I loved every minute of it. Are yeah. you kidding? They understood me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's nothing wrong with that inherently, as long as you appreciate that the the thought that went behind it. Right, exactly. It doesn't necessarily have to be an expensive gift, though. Expensive gifts are nice. They are nice, but you're right. It doesn't. It's not really about the cost. I just I enjoy the gift giving. I do. I think that that's just. I don't know. There's something fun about it. Yeah. Like even my dad was here last week uh-huh. and we were at Barnes and Noble and we we're sitting and I looked over and there was this little water cup, a reusable water cup, and uh-huh. it was like a a can. You know, mm. but kind of tall and had a straw and it was cute. And it said, it's football, y'all. And I was like, oh, I love that. Uh-huh. And, and he sure did pick it up and buy it for you, oh, didn't he? Oh, he was like, here. He gave, well, no, he gave me his credit card. And oh. was like, well, go get it. Aww. See, those are little delightful things. I mean, Aww. it was like, I think a, you know, eleven ninety nine sort of little gift. And I just was absolutely yeah. delighted. But the yeah. point was... Most of the time, I would window shop that, and I'd be like, oh, and I'd put it down and I'd walk away. Right. But my daddy was there, so he bought yeah. it for me. Yay! <laughs> then we have the wolf's and sh- wolf in sheep's clothing mm. giver. This one, uh, <laughs> 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 they want their gift giving to be even Steven. Yes. They want you to spend the exact same amount of money on them that they spent on you. They're going to spend the exact same amount of money on everybody at the same equal level. Correct. So, yes. for example, a grandparent mm-hmm. might set a budget and say, I'm going to spend this much per grandchild. Now, me, if you get something on sale... Okay, you can still count the regular price. Yeah, absolutely. You I know, agree with as that. part of that budget. Yes. But the wolf in sheep's clothing gift giver is going to spend every penny and expect you to also respond in kind. This is a way that they test people. Mm. It's more it sounds like it's just about being fair, justice even, but I would say in my experience, but also in my reading and investigation, these can be tests for certain people. Not everybody. Not everybody. Some people are just trying to get it right. And yeah. they just want to be well, fair and, then, and they're just wanting to not mess up in society. And it's a little bit more about being anxious. Yeah. Some people are, I would say a lot of people in this situation are testing it because if you don't reciprocate, that says something to them about what you feel, whether that's true or not. Right. They're, they are placing a value on it that is more than monetary. Yes. But monetary is extremely important. Yes, it is. Then we have the power player, uh, old Peg Streep says this might be the worst kind of giver 
because they understand what gives you pain consciously or unconsciously, and they give you that. Whereas some people might think it's very sweet to be given a gift that once belonged to a dead relative. They understand that every time that you look at that, you're going to be reminded that that person's dead and they still give you that gift. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's again, it's a power move that's really Yeah, unkind. it's a push them down. It's a bully move. Oh. It's just, a, it's a bully yeah. move. And it's manipulative. Mm-hmm. 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 Then we have the complainer. This is the last one. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna give you a gift. It might be a nice gift. It might not be a nice gift. But what they are going to do is they're going to tell you how difficult it was for them to get you this gift. They're going to tell you that it was more than they could afford, that they had to go out of their way to get it, that it was a pain to wrap it, that shipping it was just a nightmare at the post office. Somehow they're going to find a way to complain at you. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they had you a gift and then a dish of guilt. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Here's, here's all of that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And re- really, sometimes those people just want you to know what they went through because they want you to realize that you're worth the effort. Mm-hmm. But that is not that's not what comes across. No. No, no. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so then we have Alma. Alma. And well, and also Sam Fernandez. They kind of play the what if game. Yeah. That's a risky little game. It is a risky little game. I mean, you really you gotta be careful. Now worry is a form of fear. And a lot of people, now this is maybe a little less destructive in the show, the what if game, because they're looking back and the bad things that they can say, what if he had stayed home and watched the game and only the people who were in his house could have vouched for him, right? Yeah. Given him an alibi and those people wouldn't have been believed. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, because, because they we, weren't right. I mean, we had witnesses. We and had people. They were, they were and not they believed. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were not believed. No. So they would not have believed somebody if they'd said. So they're able to look at it from a place where that didn't happen. What if it had happened? Which I think maybe is a fair exercise it's in a, appreciation. I was about to say it's an exercise in gratefulness. Yeah, yeah. But the what ifs in life can really be paralyzing for some people. Really what happens is people look for a source of worry outside of themselves. Mm -hmm. They think that their worry and their what ifs are triggered by life experiences. What's going on in the world that make me, makes me feel this way. And that makes them feel really vulnerable. Whereas you can be affected by things happening outside of you, but how you end up dealing with them is very internal. Yes. It's very much a, it's something you can learn to control to some extent. Yeah. There's a, 
there's an amount of influence you have over yourself, obviously. Mm-hmm. We, we know that because we grow as people. We, we do change our minds about things. Um, but we have a framework from which we work. And what may not be able to be changed are some of those more inherent personality traits and the way that we look at the world. Maybe the way the framework was built when we were a child, even if you try to change it, you don't necessarily burn it and rebuild it. it there's still some of that there. And over time, different ways of looking at the world can become you know, more automatic, but we definitely can change the process of how we handle what's happened to us, right? Even if I naturally assume that a gift that's given to me is insensitive because I have a natural kind of, because I'm a love language gift giving, you know, gift receiving, you know, like just because of that doesn't mean that I have to assess it and then proceed based on that framework. Right. But I may never change my framework that I really like that and that that means something to me. Right. So, you know, we can. We can exercise some control over the process of what we choose to do with it. And worry worry is is about about yourself. Right. Yes. Worry is about yourself. Concerns, yes. those are about life around you. Okay. Worry is internal. Okay. So if I have a concern about something happening, I'm concerned about this, you know, sequence of events that is somewhat predictable, you mm-hmm. know, and there's a, there's a chance that that could happen. Uh, maybe I ought to then prepare, maybe I ought to do something like make a few phone calls. Maybe I ought to throw that extra thing in my luggage when I travel, because I thought about it and I went, you know, maybe I could use that. You know, there are concerns and that has to do with the outside of the world. But when you talk about worry, you're talking about mm-hmm. your fears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they said that it can be, uh, it's, sign or symptom of obsessive compulsive disorder when you fixate on these things that mm-hmm. it can be more difficult. And again, you know, you mm-hmm. can use therapy, cognitive therapy and things to yeah. help you deal with that more effectively. This is similar, similar sorts of thoughts and treatments. Yeah. And obsessive compulsive, there's two parts to that, the obsessive part and the compulsion. The obsessive is the thought. The compulsion is to do. Yeah. And you may have symptoms of obsessions and not compulsions, and you might have compulsions and not really obsessions, mm-hmm. or you might have both, you know, and cognitive behavioral therapy can be great. It's more helpful if there is a behavioral component attached to that cognitive therapy. Okay. Just going in to try to change your framework, no matter how many leadership conferences you go to yeah. and how many life coaches you have and how many CEOs tell you to just change your mind. It really doesn't work unless you change the behavior behind it and change your environment. There's physical things that support that side of it. But even more helpful, and people do not want to hear this, but a good little bit old-fashioned kind of talk therapy, a little bit of reassessing the framework. Mm, Okay. It's not necessarily what is considered professionally as cognitive therapy. Okay. Okay, but, um, but it does help us to grow that framework and grow how we approach things. And so it's not scary, y'all. Go talk about things, you know? It's totally fine. Maybe there's like a legitimate reason you're worried about something and now you just can deal with it. Right. Like there's good things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's in the strategies listed here about what you can do. You can face your worry head on. Face it. Face it. Face it. It's probably not as scary when you sit down and talk about it with somebody, you retrain your brain, learn some new mental mm-hmm. skills to help you get out of being fixated on worries. Right. Exercise is a natural anti-anxiety. Not to say that you can exercise depression or anxiety away, but it will not hurt. It will set and you it, up for better success. If you're limited 
if you're affected in a limited way, it could be something that could help you. Right. Yeah. You can pray or meditate, clasp your hands and give yourself a chance to think about things and you can talk to a higher power or you can just meditate on them and that can give you some clarity and closure and it's helpful. It gives you time to center and be quiet and understand what you're thinking. And then, you know, worry wisely, worry intentionally, use it as a fuel to motivate you to, like you said, pack that extra thing. Right. I think sometimes we want to demonize those parts of ourselves that are negative or not fun. Mm -hmm. The buzzkills of life. We kind of just want to say, that's a bad thing about me. Well, maybe I could see how it would be a dysfunctional part of your life if not managed well. But imagine, imagine a world in your reality where the fears and the anxieties and the worries and and those things that are the buzzkills of your personality that you don't like or the compulsions you have. Imagine a world where those things were just data points, just data points, just data points on your reality. Mm-hmm. And what if you took those data points and used them to chart a course rather than to define who you are? Ooh. Ooh. What if? That's a what if. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a good what if. I like that. All right. Let's talk about some real life stuff. Larry David didn't have to hire somebody to go to the game with him. He could have walked. <laughs> <laughs> there are legitimate ways to walk to Dodger Stadium that are totally safe. I'll post an article on our social media. You can find us on Twitter at Killer Fun Pod. You can find us on Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast, exploring the intersection of crime and entertainment, or you can send me an email, killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. And there's ways you can park and take a very nice 30-minute walk to be able to get to Dodger Stadium and you can save money and you can save time. You're going to spend the same amount of time sitting in the traffic True, as if you had just parked and walked. Make sure you take a flashlight so that when you leave, mm-hmm. you have a flashlight and you can be seen. Yes. Yeah. Or make sure that your phone is with you and you could turn on your flashlight yeah, there. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Another thing he could have done rather than hiring a sex worker, <laughs> not that we have anything wrong with sex workers who are not being exploited. That's, I don't care. Whatever. If if it works for you, good. You can also rent a friend. There's (laughs) rentafriend.com. You can uh, find somebody local to go to a movie or a restaurant with. They can go with you to a party or an event. They can teach you a new hobby or a skill. And this is strictly for platonic relationships. This rent a friend. Rentafriend.com. They said that you can, most rent a friends start at about $10 an hour, but depending on what you're doing, a lot of people won't charge you anything. This is just a way to meet a new person, maybe have them vetted a little bit rather than just, you know, going to the meetup or Craigslist. Yeah. It also seems like a really good way for serial killers to find their next victim. It does. It really does. <laughs> I, I, thank you for saying that. It's really creepy. Yeah. Yeah, it's really creepy. Yeah. 
So next time. Okay, wait, wait. Oh, I got to say one more thing about this documentary. Oh, p- please do. Because I just want to point out that the Dodgers were playing the Braves. Oh, yes. And I just want to point out that the Braves won. Okay, which was not clear in the documentary. And that's my team. So I just wanted to tell everybody that it was a really great documentary. It ended really, really well. So, all right, Braves, they are doing well. I am yep. rooting for the Braves. And just be aware that from now until fall ends... I might start talking a lot about the Braves because we are, we're headed there. All right. So chop on. That's, that's awesome. I have, (laughs) you have no concern about baseball at all, do you? There, if you could pick any sport and say, which one do you care the least about? It'd be baseball. I'm sorry. It would be baseball. That's okay. That's right. I got enough love for both of us. Okay. It's, a, it's okay. okay. And so, you know, we're going to keep chopping on, you yeah. know, Acuna. It's all right. Still love you, man. It's all right. Okay. You, by the time you all hear this, you're going to forget because then 24 new cycle has moved on. But at this moment, just, you know, throwing my encouragement out there. It's okay. Good. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Great. So next time. Next time. We're going to talk about. Bernie. I can't wait. Starring Jack Black. It's not a documentary about Bernie Sanders. No, and it's also not Weekend at Bernie's. No, it's okay? not it's Weekend not. at Bernie's. However, it is based on a true story. I can't wait to see this. You've mentioned this before, and I'm like kind of excited it's to watch it now. It's sort of like one of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I like Jack Black. So, Bernie. I love it. Bernie. Check it out. I believe it's on Amazon Prime. I believe so. But you can also rent it on iTunes. Oh, yeah. So anywhere you mm -hmm. get your movies, you can find it. You can find Bernie. And FYI, for those of you who are a little, I don't know about it, Jack Black. Okay. Let me tell you, Matthew McConaughey. Oh. Also. Nice. Matthew McConaughey's mom. Really freaking hysterical. And you know what? Shirley MacLaine. Need I say more? No, not really. Thank you. And you know, Matthew McConaughey is now a professor at I UT. Know. I got a kid who's extremely excited about this, right? <laughs> well, I'm sure you do. He's had he's his very eyes interested in film. set on UT Austin Film School for a while. Oh. And so this is just money. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He UT might not Austin, be there anymore. take our money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll sell a kidney so my child can go to a state school. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> all right so we'll talk about that next time thanks for listening all right we'll see you then forge audio dream it build it share it